Welcome into another Hops and Spirits Q&A, our questions in alcohol, where we talk, as you might guess, a lot of alcohol, the spirits world this time around. And we have uh, some guests that there's a little bit of time difference uh, between us as they are in Japan. I'm in Lexington, Kentucky, so uh, it should be a a fun chat, though, because we're with the the founder, uh, Christopher uh, Pellegrini, and the ambassador, Stephen Lyman. Did I say that right? That's right. right. Bingo. All right, and let's see if I can do this correct. Of uh, Honkaku, that's pretty good. Okay, uh, uh, Honkaku spirits, which I told them I would probably, no matter how many times I tried, not be able to pull it off. But guys, welcome in. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Now, how do you properly say it that it sounds not awkward? <laughs> it, you're right. It, it is not the easiest Japanese word that we could have chosen as the name of the company, but it's pronounced Honkaku. That's right. I knew I was yeah, Honkaku. And it means authentic in Japanese is one of the most common ways that it's translated. I like that. I, I like that. So now, obviously, you know, those watching the video can see that you have a few uh, spirits behind y'all. So clearly, <laughs> Uh, you enjoy this kind of stuff. But before we get into the complete spirits part of all this, tell us a little bit about yourselves and just kind of your background, because both of you guys kind of have unique backgrounds, uh, you know, from reading up on everything. I'll go first. Okay, <laughs> yes. I'll start it off. Um, so Christopher Pellegrini, a nearly 20 year resident of Tokyo, Japan, where I am right now. And I came into the spirits world via the beer industry. I used to brew for Otter Creek in Middlebury, Vermont, back in the 90s, back when I wasn't old enough to drink. And that led me down this amazing path towards just a a really intense appreciation for all batch distilled or batch fermented drinks, everything that's done really by hand, not by computer in the beverage alcohol world. And as as soon as I arrived in Japan, I ran kind of headlong into Japanese koji fermented spirits. And it's just been a fascinating journey ever since. And I've been alongside Stephen proselytizing for these, for these indigenous spirits categories in Japan, in particular, at the behest of the Japanese government. And that has led to establishing an import company, Honkaku Spirits, in March of 2020, which was amazing timing, as I'm sure you'll agree. <laughs> and uh, here we are. And Stephen? Yep. Yep. I'm Stephen Lyman. I, uh, I discovered shochu and awamori, which are these koji distilled spirits most commonly uh, discussed uh, in New York City, actually. Um, uh, I relocated there in 2002 and was there until I moved to Japan in 2018. And it was really discovering those drinks in New York City that has led me to living in Japan. And I'm uh, based in Fukuoka, which is essentially the capital city of Kyushu, which is the uh, the shochu producing region. About 90% or more of shochu made in Japan is made in on this island. Uh, close, probably around 300 uh, active distilleries, maybe even more than that, uh, on the island. And uh, so I, it's pretty easy for me to get around and visit distilleries and that sort of thing. Uh, but I actually discovered Christopher came at this through working in beverage alcohol as an underage uh, person. And I uh, actually didn't start drinking until a little bit later in life. Uh, and I actually came to it through food. I was uh, living in New York and enjoying all of the 
restaurants that were available and I learned a little bit about wine and craft beer and then I got interested in whiskey so I had sort of this evolution where I, alcohol was always well later it started to become part of my uh, culinary experience right my dining experience in New York and so but what I realized is I really enjoy spirits but they're usually too strong to pair with food so when I discovered shochu which is typically bottled at 25 percent alcohol I realized with a little bit of dilution, suddenly we're at a wine strength and it's a spirit that goes with food. And to me, that was really, really interesting. And part of what makes it work that way is it's it's single pot distilled. So one time through the pot still, not in the Irish tradition, right? With a single pot, meaning this is actually once through the still. So really, unless you have a, a wonderful fermentation, a really well-made fermentation, it's not gonna taste great when it comes out the other end. And it's typically not aged very long. So uh, it's, it's a really unique spirits category that uh, really sort of changed my life. I mean, it really completely took me in a different direction than I ever would have anticipated, uh, you know, 15 years ago. So, yeah. Anyway, glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad, glad, glad to have you both. And, and I, I love that because you never know how folks get into, you know, the spirits world or, or even the, the beverage, alcoholic beverage world, because, you know, for me, um, it was a little bit of just my, my dad and, and in the golf course and things like that. And then next thing I know, I've gotten a whole lot deeper into the spirit side with, with doing this podcast. So, you know, you kind of both of you kind of touched on it, but it seems like you, you found a love for, for one Japanese whiskey or Japanese spirits at some point. Um, so, but before that was, I mean, Stephen, you said some, some wine and some pairings and then obviously Christopher, uh, the craft, the craft beer world, early craft beer, beer world uh, now, nowadays. So, I mean, what, when exactly kind of did that love come about where you were just like, okay, this is stuff that I, I got to find. It was in early 2003 for me, I had moved to Japan in late 2002 and I was in a, in a sake um, gastropub, izakaya, Japanese you know, pub and the mass, I think it was raining that day. So there weren't any other customers. The guy behind the bar was pretty bored. So he's like, Hey, today you're drinking this. And he pushed a barley shochu in front of me instead of the normal sake. I had never heard the word shochu before. Um, and so I was like, well, that's not sake. What's that? He's like, shochu, drink it. So I taste it after about an hour later, I had gone through five different types of shochu. I had gone barley, sweet potato, uh, kokuto, sugar soba which is buckwheat and then i think i had a rice shochu as well and all of these things were called the same thing they were all shochu they were all wildly different i was like i don't get this at all where is this like some <laughs> is this some new thing he's like no it's been around forever and uh it's it's as japanese as as the sake that you normally drink when you come in here and i was just you know mind blown zero to sixty I was in, in 4.7 seconds. I was like, I was flying down to Kyushu where Steven lives now and just knocking on distillery doors saying, Hey, can I, I, I used, I, I kind of know how this works. I used to work on a beer floor. Can I see? And they, a lot of places were like, get out of here, weirdo. But eventually <laughs> a couple of places let me in. And that was the beginning of some great friendships, some long-term friendships. And it was the beginning of my education and it was very necessary for me to do that because there was no information available the guy who first introduced me to this these spirits couldn't tell me a damn well 
there was a language barrier. I think it was one <laughs> one issue. I didn't speak any Japanese at the time. The only the the Japanese expression that I was most proud of was no foam on my beer. I knew I learned how to say that first. I didn't like how they put like a three inch head on every glass of beer I got, even though it was a rice lager. And so it was just it was the beginning of one of the most um i think steven put it well before it just changed my life it really did running into this huge spirits category there is more shochu made in japan than tequila in mexico wow it is hundreds of years old and it's not some new trendy thing this is just part of japanese culture that is hiding in plain sight it outsells sake in japan but nobody's ever heard of it. And I sure certainly hadn't heard of it in 2002 when I first arrived. 2003 was the beginning of where we are today. So about 18, 19 years later, still learning every day. It's still in education and it's still the most fascinating thing I've ever run into in my entire life. Yeah, and for me, it was uh, a few years later. Uh, Christopher had the advantage of living in Japan. I was living in New York and I was out with friends uh, for a Spanish tapas dinner. So lots of wine flowing. We had a great night out. Uh, it was actually to welcome a, a, a guy who was moving up to New York from DC, who was a mutual friend or had mutual friends. Uh, and after dinner, it had been a big party, probably eight or 10 people. And I think four of us decided to stay out for a second drink. The other people had to get the train back to New Jersey or Long Island or whatever. And so the four of us, none of us knew the neighborhood. And we're looking around and right next to the Spanish tapas restaurant is a Japanese izakaya. I didn't know what an izakaya was at the time. I thought it was a Japanese bar. We walk in. We're the only customers in the place. It's about 10 at night on a Tuesday. And we sit down and the, the waitress, a uh, Japanese uh, young woman said, oh, it's Tuesday night, which means 50% off a bottle of shochu. And I said, what's shochu? And she said, it's like Japanese vodka. No. I, I don't like vodka. But I checked the menu and we could get a seven, 750 milliliter bottle standard size spirits bottle for $21 in New York City in the restaurant. And I said, we'll take a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out to be a beautiful drink. It was like so much more aromatic and flavorful than a vodka. Uh, obviously, vodka is the neutrality of, of it is what makes it such a good backbone for a lot of cocktails. But uh, with shochu, it's something you can drink on its own. And that really began my journey. Now, I didn't have the advantage of living in Japan. I didn't have any expectation of living in Japan. I didn't begin, I mean, Christopher had easy access to distilleries and realized very quickly he needed to learn Japanese, not just for shochu, but to live in Japan. I didn't start studying Japanese for six more years. So I definitely missed an opportunity there. Where I think my Japanese would be much better than it is today. Uh, and it wasn't until 2012 that I stepped foot in distillery. So it took me much longer uh, to, to, I guess, make the leap that Christopher made very, very quickly after he discovered the drinks. Uh, I, I love those. And, and I'm going to have uh, one of them now before we get into the, the whiskey. And it's the, uh, wh how did you, what did you call this? The Are we going with Mahoko? Yeah. And, and what type of, uh, what would you call this? <laughs> this is a, this is a sweet potato shochu. Now okay. this is, this is not where we would normally start our tasting. Just so you know, we've right. got all, we've got a, pretty wide portfolio, uh, technically nine different shochu in the United States right now. If you go to honkakuspirits.com, then you can see all of them. But this is a sweet potato shochu, and sweet potato shochu is the best-selling category in Japan. This is made by Furusawa Distillery in Miyazaki Prefecture. 
And she is the fifth generation Toji or master brewer distiller of that distillery. Her mother was the third generation. And this is actually named after her niece, who might be the sixth generation Toji. She's still in high school, though, so she can't drink this, but, but you can. And it is old. Um, the TTB doesn't like age statements on non-barrel age products, but they don't speak Japanese. So we were able to put a 15 here in Japanese. It's actually 16 now. It's spent an extra year in the bottle and uh, not in the bottle, an extra year in the tank before we were able to bottle because thank you, COVID. And it's a combination in the standard style of a rice koji starter fermentation and then sweet potatoes in the secondary fermentation. Most shochu is a two-stage fermentation and it's a very long fermentation. It can go for as long as like three weeks is not in, uncommon. And it is single pot distilled, as Stephen said before, meaning it tastes like what it's made from. And this tastes unctuous and funky and earthy, a little spicy, a lot of sweet notes from the sweet potatoes. It is all sorts of layered. I wonder what you think. It is wild. Like the, for me doing all these different podcasts and stuff, the only thing that I'm going to, and it's not because they taste similar. It was just kind of the wildness that I got was uh, foundry distilling out of Iowa took a, a beer and turned, you know, took the base layer of uh, Boulevard wheat and turned it into a malt whiskey. And to yeah. taste the two side by side, I was like, and this is huh. just like, I've never tasted anything like this before. It is like a that, new flavor profile for a lot of folks and, in the States. And, and I'm not a, sure. I, I, as much as I do this, I don't love to always drink things neat. <laughs> that's, that's not always my, my go-to, especially if I know I'm going to be talking for a while, because that can get, uh, well, it could get a lot of fun, but depending on how you, how you look at it. But man, that's, <laughs> that's, that's wild. I could see how you could just kind of go down the rabbit hole with these, especially if they're like, you know, like almost like a, a bunch you know, they say four, five, five different things and they're wildly different because that's kind of what I feel like, especially nowadays, what people love is trying new things. And yeah. God. And can you imagine anybody referring to that as a Japanese vodka? Mm -mm. <laughs> <laughs> slap their face. You slap yeah. their face if they say that. That is not. Say like if I, yeah. If I take yeah. a shot of vodka, like my hair is going to stand up. There, there's none of that. This is actually like very drinkable and just. You know, you're and not just it actually vodka. smells like something, right? Yeah. Other than <laughs> ethanol. Yeah. It's got that is really this one in particular is such perfume notes. It's really, really incredible. Um, and yet it's got some real nice depth to it because of the long, the long aging, which That's, is that is wild. Uh, pretty I, now I'm very yeah. intrigued to try. I know I, I've got a bunch of uh, uh samples here, but I don't I don't want to go through all of them tonight because uh, if we have enough time maybe we can come back to a different one and show you a completely different expression I, I like that so mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how you this company came to be and you know obviously launching during the pandemic great timing um but you're not the only one I've ever talked to that that's done sure. that and in the end they come out on the other side you know while we as we're getting a little bit more back to normal uh doing well because for whatever reason they you know when you make good stuff and have interesting stuff, things tend to work out. And so talk a little bit about how it finally came to be and um, you know, where, where you're at now. Yeah. Uh, we, as I said before, Stephen and I were both, well, I, I mentioned that I was, Stephen was also designated by the Japanese cabinet, uh, cabinet office as a, well, an ambassador 
for these spirits internationally. It's not only Shotu, also Awamori, which is the rice spirit made in Okinawa. They're basically, they're kinfolk. And we were all going all over the world doing tastings and doing whatever we could to get these drinks in front of people. And it was taking forever. There was very little uptake. There was very little, you know, going back and see how things are going and just driving the point home. And Stephen and I got fed up with it, basically. We were like, this, this, this deserves such a, a bigger platform. It deserves so much more energy, sustained energy to educate people about it. So we said, screw it. All right. And uh, Honkaku Spirits was born in March of 2020. And it was naturally a very difficult process given the circumstances. And it still is a difficult process given the shipping and logistical issues that the world is still kind of thrashing through. Uh, but we were able to get some containers to the States. And Stephen and I were both in market in August and September this year. And the reception has been way better than expected. People actually kind of have heard of what Shochu is before, and they're, they're actively trying to seek it out. And, I, and we are, have been very pleased with how things have gone in spite or despite, I'm not sure which one of those spites you want to use, of everything that is happening around us. So yeah, it's been good. I don't know, Stephen, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, no, that, I think that's a that's a great summary. It, it was really born out of frustration with seeing how the uh, shochu was being introduced to the U.S. market, and it was be largely being introduced by large Japanese food importers, who also have large sake portfolios. And if you can imagine walking into a bar or a restaurant, it's like buy our soy sauce, buy our miso, here's some rice grown in Japan. Oh, and then we have alcohol. And of course, these, these are also the folks that import Sapporo and Kirin and Asahi, super dry, right? All the big Japanese beer brands. So when the, you know, the, the uh, I guess the point of least resistance is to sell Japanese beer or Japanese sake, mm -hmm. rather than a spirits category nobody's ever heard of. So there was very little uptake uh, in, in shochu sales. And most shochu is being marketed to Japanese expats living in the U.S. It, it wasn't, they weren't really trying to figure out how to sell it to Americans or to non-Japanese establishments. And it really, you know, we tried and tried and tried, you know, through white glove diplomacy <laughs> and whatever else. And finally we were like, no, we can do this. Why, why are we helping? Why are we trying to help other people do this when we could just do it ourselves? And yeah, that's, that's sometimes it's a smart came about. It, it sometimes just works that way. And like I said, it's it's fascinating to to learn learn about this too, because I also feel like the American consumer, even North America in general, they're looking for different things these days. You know, that's you know, I mean, obviously bourbon and whiskey's booming. A lot of the craft beer folks like myself that grew, kind of grew up in the time of its you know giant arch are, are now branching out to a lot of other things. You know, I think of Moscow and others. So this is like perfect timing. Now I've got the the whiskey. Uh, what what can you tell me a little bit about it? So yeah, maybe I can start off with this one. Christopher can add something if he's got it. So Takamine eight-year-old whiskey. Uh, it's actually, as Christopher mentioned, everything in, in the Mahoko bottle is at least 16 years old. Everything in a Takamine bottle, if it's a 2020 release, is at least nine years old. Because mm. uh, again, we were delayed a year uh, due to COVID. The, but of course, you know, starting a shochu import company 
with only shochu in the portfolio was probably going to be a non-starter unless we had very, very deep pockets. So we needed something that would be more accessible that people would uh, understand a little bit better. And uh, and the what I realized actually in, um, in the research for my book, so I guess we haven't talked about that, but uh, I'm actually the author of The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks, uh, which was published by Tuttle in 2019. Uh, it's actually nominated for James Beard Award in 2020, which shocked me. Um, there it is. And in, as I was doing research for the whiskey chapter, I discovered the story of a man named Jokichi Takamine. So Jokichi Takamine was a Japanese chemist who, uh, um, well, it's just a fascinating story. He, he actually was born uh, to in 1854, which is actually the year that Commodore Perry sailed into Tokyo Bay with his black ships, and and you know diplomacy by gunpoint basically said you know open up to trade or else because Japan was a hermit kingdom at that point, and uh, but Takamine was born in northern Japan at that time. Uh, his mother was the daughter of a sake maker, and his father was a samurai physician, and this guy by all accounts as a young man was brilliant and he ended up studying in Nagasaki in Osaka in Kyoto before he ended up at uh, Tokyo University he was actually part of the first graduating class in the engineering school at Tokyo University which is now the top university in Asia and he uh, ended up going to work for the government which is what a lot of these uh, enterprising young men were doing this is when Japan was very rapidly modernizing and he ended up getting sent to New Orleans as part of the delegation for the New Orleans World's Fair in 1885, where he met and fell in love with a young heiress named Caroline Hitch. And uh, they apparently got engaged on his trip, but he, he needed money in order to be worthy of this, this American heiress. And so he uh, came back to Japan and he made his first fortune in phosphate mining. Uh, his first fertilizer company was a New Orleans or a Louisiana interest for agriculture, agricultural uses of fertil, fertilizer from phosphate. Uh, and he came back to the States and took her hand in marriage and they moved back to Japan and started a family where they had two children. They had uh, Jokichi Jr. and Ebenezer, probably the first Ebenezer ever born in Japan. Probably. Uh, I would uh, yeah, maybe the only Ebenezer ever born in Japan. <laughs> and uh, a few years later, his mother-in-law uh, reached out and said, you should come uh, back to the States. I have some business opportunities for you. And so in 1890, he and his wife and, and children moved to Chicago, where they started the Takamine Ferment Company. And he uh, very quickly was introduced to the president of the Illinois Whiskey Trust, which was the largest spirits manufacturer in America. Uh, in the late 1800s. They had 50 plus distilleries. The single largest distillery in America was in Peoria, Illinois, called the Manhattan Distillery. And uh, they, he basically took his knowledge as a chemist, which is what he had studied, biochemist basically, and his knowledge of koji uh, from his mother's sake making family. And he patented a maltless whiskey making process, both in the US and the UK. Um, and they began experiments in Peoria, Illinois in 1891 to make a maltless whiskey using koji. So koji 
is the backbone of Japanese fermentation. It's the national mold of Japan. And it's used to make everything you can think of that you think of as Japanese that has any fermentation. Sake, shochu, awamori, all the drinks we've already mentioned, but plus soy sauce, miso, mirin, all of these uniquely Japanese ingredients are all made using koji. So it's, it's the backbone of Japanese culinary tradition. And so he had that, he, he, it's kind of funny to me because they've been making sake in Japan for 1300 years and he patented the use of koji to make alcohol in America. <laughs> Thousands of people had done it before in Japan, but uh, he actually had, he had been at the age of 31, he was the head of the Japanese patent office. So he learned all about patent law. So he's very savvy with that sort of that business side of things. But uh, now there was an article published in the Chicago Tribune in uh, late September 1891 saying whiskey to become cheaper. Two weeks later, Manhattan Distillery Laboratory, where they were doing the experiments, burnt down under mysterious circumstances. <laughs> and it's clear that an accelerant was used. So not blaming the maltsters, but I think we're blaming the maltsters. We are uh, we're blaming so, the maltsters. <laughs> so fortunately, the, the Illinois Whiskey Trust had deep pockets and they rebuilt the laboratory and the distillery. And uh, they began production of the Takamine process, essentially koji fermented whiskey in uh, December of 1894. So now let's, let's take a step back. Masataka Taketsuru, the founder of Nika and the man who helped create the Yamazaki distillery for Suntory, went to Scotland to study, to learn how to make whiskey in 1918. But there was a Japanese man making whiskey in America in 1891. And it actually began commercial production in 1894. So long before Taketsudu, who's rightly considered the father of Japanese whiskey or grandfather of Japanese whiskey, there was a Japanese man making whiskey in America. And, but for what happened next, this would, could have been, probably would have been an American style of whiskey by the early 20th century. And what happened next, unfortunately, was in that. So he started production December 1st, 1894. End of February, 1895. The Sherman Act was brought against the Illinois Whiskey Trust and the entire conglomerate was brought into receivership and broken up by the US government. And the Manhattan distillery was sold to other interests and those interests decided to return to malting rather than using koji fermentation. And Takamine sued to get his, uh, his, his patent back, but it was considered an asset of the distillery uh, that the people had paid for. And so he lost that case. Uh, being a, a Japanese citizen in America in the 1890s, I can imagine your, your case wouldn't be heard too well at court. Mm. Um, so he ended up giving up on that and moving to New York City where he opened a laboratory in Harlem. And in 1900, so five years later, he isolated adrenaline. And it was the first human hormone isolated in human history. And adrenaline is still used today to restart hearts. So he has saved probably millions of lives through that innovation. Uh, obviously made another fortune with adrenaline. And he, but even despite his failures with the whiskey and the difficulty in trying to get his patent back, he ended up uh, really believing in American-Japanese relations. He really was dedicated to peace and harmony between the two countries. 
So later in life, he donated the cherry blossom trees to Washington, D.C. And that was a private donation. It's always written up as this was a gift from the Japanese government. But he actually used the Japanese embassy in D.C. to facilitate the gift. It was actually him and his he uh, bankrolled business. it. Yeah. Yeah, he bankrolled it. So really um, incredible uh, human being. And as Christopher has said several times before, probably the most historically significant Japanese person to ever live in the United States. All apologies to Ichio and Shohei Otani, but, uh, or Yoko Ono even. Um, sure. But he really, really uh, phenomenally important person that even Japanese people don't necessarily know this story. They know him as the person who maybe they know that he isolated adrenaline. Maybe they know he donated the cherry blossom trees, but most of that history they don't know. And so um, now it turns out that in parallel, actually prior to me uh, discovering that story in my research for the book, uh, a, a friend of mine here in Fukuoka, who's the son of a shochu maker, also knew this story and had convinced his father to begin doing something that shochu makers just don't do. And that is taking a 100% barley fermentation and double pot distilling it and putting it in an oak cask, which is essentially, remember shochu single pot distilled. Mm -hmm. So once you double distill, it's no longer shochu. Then what is it? It's, it's this gray zone, right? But then you put it in a barrel in an oak barrel and you age it, then what does it become, right? And so now, and then in he and when, when I told, so he was that uh, shochu maker, the son of the shochu maker, uh, Michiaki Shinozaki was actually the first person to ever ask me to start an import company in the US. He wanted me to do this long before anybody else had the idea. He was the first person to ever even suggest it to him. And that was long ago, so when I, decided to work with Christopher to, to do this, to really support Christopher's efforts in starting this company, I reached out to Michiaki and told him what this project that I was working on. And we began brainstorming about what of his products might be worth exporting. And he's like, oh, by the way, I've been doing this thing for a while. What do you think? <laughs> and then the two of us together with like, you know what we should call it? <laughs> We should call it Takamine. Yeah. And, and then the, now the thing is, is Takamine is one of, one of his many, many successes is he started what is now one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. His, his family here in Japan uh, is quite, quite wealthy. Uh, they're old money and they have never allowed his name to be used for a commercial product uh, until now. Oh, wow. So Michiaki actually went to the family trust and presented the project to them, and they gave permission to use his name and likeness for the for the brand, uh, because it's it's essentially his one failed experiment, and here's an opportunity to bring it back and 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 finally introduce this uh, Takamine process whiskey to the to the U.S. market. So sorry, I, that was very long winded, but it's a fascinating history though, and 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 being able to taste it, it's definitely not what you would expect from a, a whiskey or, or anything like that in terms of kind of that initial, you know, hit and, but it's, it has those qualities though. It's a really interesting kind of bridge between a couple of different mm -hmm. traditions. Uh, Takamine was essentially making a maltless bourbon mm -hmm. more than a hundred years ago, but it's not a bourbon. Right. 
And this is made in Japan. It's fermented in Japan. It's distilled and aged in Japan and bottled in Japan, but it's not a Japanese whiskey. It's this, it's a bridge between those two traditions, I think, both in terms of the story, the production, and in terms of the flavor profile. It has It has something, you know, you might not really love Japanese whiskeys, but this is this is something that kind of alludes to that, but is not it's not in the Scotch tradition. It's not a yeah. it's not aping a Scotch. And you might think that bourbon is a little bit too maybe it's too sweet sometimes, but it's not a bourbon. It's somewhere in the middle. It's a very much like Takamine was an emissary for the relationship between Japan and America, even if it wasn't official. This is kind of in the same vein a bridge between those two styles of whiskey. And it's, it's really interesting because it's so deep. It has that midsection where the koji, the koji kind of resides and, and gives it that extra depth, that extra like mouthfeel, that extra weight and savoriness. And it's been, I, I got to tell you, it's a lot of fun to take out the tastings because you <laughs> tell that story People don't even need to taste it. They already decided that they love it. You know, it's yeah. a made for Hollywood story. It's almost too good to be true, but you can do your own research that that it is 100 percent accurate. And it's a absolutely delicious drink uh, to boot. So, yeah, no, that's yeah, I think what that's why it's it, it's not as wild as like the 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 uh, the the, the Mahoko. Did I say yeah. that right? right. It, like that, because that's a totally different type of thing in my, my, my palate but this one it is weird because it's got so much it's like a a, a cousin to, to to what i'm used to drinking you know or some like mm -hmm. a, a a relative of some sort but has a lot of the same characteristics in that but yeah that's i don't even know how to explain it because i'm kind of just it's it is just different enough that i don't really have that that <laughs> the right words yeah, we we've uh, blind tasted some some whiskey buyers on it because that's kind of a fun thing to do. Not even tell them mm -hmm. who we are or what it is. Just give this a try. And uh, the common refrain is they they think it's probably about a 15 year old uh, 100 proof uh, weeded bourbon. That's okay. the yeah. most common weeded bourbon. It's uh, really common weeded bourbon, and that's it's because you got the spiciness almost of the of the grain, right, with the with the barley. Um, and the other thing that makes Takamine unique to other Japanese whiskeys is because Japanese whiskeys are made in the Scotch tradition, they're, they're, they're using second, second fill cast, right? They're using ex-bourbon casts or casts from other parts of the world. Takamine is actually 90% virgin oak. Mm -hmm. And it's actually American oak imported from Missouri. Uh, and then casked, the casks are made here, uh, here in Kyushu in Miyazaki Prefecture. And so that also gives it that bourbon quality, right? Because bourbon's always new, new oak, you know, virgin oak. So that's another part of it that I think makes uh, for a really, really interesting uh, expression. And it really is, it's unique. It's, it's and, and, you know, it's, it's eight, nine years old and it's 40% alcohol, but it punches above its weight. <clears throat> and the low oh, ABV yeah. is primarily because it's casked at a lower ABV, which was actually the tradition we're not necessarily the tradition that's common in American whiskeys in the 19th century. People didn't cask at 57 or 63 or whatever the, you know, these cask strengths are today. They were casking much uh, uh, lower proof spirits. And when you think about that, that means there's very little dilution. 
right? So you're still retaining a lot of the character of the of the cask strength, even though it's it's been diluted just a little bit down to to forty percent alcohol. So yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a really fun drink. Uh, I almost now want to because. I have kind of two two different versions of podcasts, and one of them we do a flight night where we you know a bunch of uh, bourbon folks sit down. I would love to just get their thoughts because this is just so different but so good. You know, and you talked about is it the is it koji? Is that the correct term? Yeah, that's right. You know, obviously Japanese spirits with with using that fermentation that uh, type of, of process have to be kind of almost vastly different than what we think of traditionally over here. So can you explain the, the, how, what, what Koji is and then how different, obviously, that ends up making Japanese spirits compared to what we're used to maybe in most parts of the world besides <laughs> Japan? Sure. Maybe I'll take that one since I work in a shochu distillery every fall um, to, to make these drinks. Um, so Koji replaces malting, as we alluded to before. Uh, and some spirits obviously are made with enzymatic sacrification. Uh, methods, but uh, it's easiest to think about it as a replacement for malting. As, as I said earlier, Takamine created a maltless whiskey, essentially. Uh, and so in malting, which Christopher could explain much better, and I'm sure your listeners probably understand quite well, is, is a way of extracting sugars from, from grains, right? Because grains are made up primarily of complex carbohydrates or starches, and those need to be broken into sugars in order for yeast to do its job and convert the sugars to alcohol. And in malting, you basically get the grain to germinate and then you kill it. And then the germination is actually what's released the sugars and then, then you extract them. So in koji, what koji does, it's a mold and it grows on, most easily it grows on steamed uh, grains or steamed uh, starch sources. And uh, the koji grows into and on the the grain itself and it hypha grow into the grain and they actually begin breaking down the starches into sugars it's creating amylase and protease and the amylase is creating sugars and the protease is actually breaking down proteins so koji can also be used as a meat tenderizer uh, hopefully not during alcohol production but um the that process is replacing malting right that you're you're sacrificing the grain through the use of this mold and as I said before, this is how sake is made, shochu, awamori. And uh, it's a really, really um, different process because in, in beer or whiskey making, when you're using malt, uh, it's first you extract the sugars and then you, you, you start your fermentation with the yeast. In, in these alcohol traditions, you're actually putting the koji uh, inoculated grain into the primary fermentation with water and yeast. So the yeast begins to eat the sugars and the koji continues to, be, continues to break down the, the grains. Uh, and it takes a while, it's a long process for koji to, to, to dissolve the entire grain into sugars, uh, but it does eventually happen. And these fermentations, there'll be, there'll be a lot of rice visible in a, in a primary fermentation or barley, whatever your, 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 first, your primary fermentation substrate is, it's usually barley or rice. Uh, and at the beginning of that fermentation process, it'll be, a, you'll see a lot of grains in the fermentation then, but over about a week, most of it liquefies. And then at the end of that week, you're then going to add your main ingredient, which, uh, in the case of Mahoko was sweet potato, uh, in the case of, uh, another one, it might be barley or, 
or buckwheat or as Sobo, as Christopher mentioned. So a number of different uh, ingredients that can be used for shochu production, but it, and, it, and the, the style is defined by what you put into your main fermentation. You usually start with a rice or barley primary fermentation and then you move to the main ingredient. Uh, so, but the, what's, what's cool about it is it, you have multiple parallel fermentation. So at the same time, the koji and the, and the yeast are active at the same time. So it's this really dynamic environment. Uh, and they, they also kind of don't, they, it works in a beautiful way and makes these beautiful drinks, but it also doesn't work as a natural environment for these two organisms because koji is aerobic. It needs oxygen to survive and yeast is anaerobic. And so as you, you need, in order to keep the koji alive, you need to stir these pots and that allows the koji to rise to the surface and take a breath, but it also agitates the yeast. But when you agitate yeast, it creates aromas that we like. Angry yeast makes nice smells, basically. It's weird. So, yeah, it's it's a really fun process. So, but so different from Western traditions. I was gonna say, in, in the one thing I've learned just talking to, you know, folks like yourself is just how much you know people go, oh, what does it take to to make something like that? And it's a there's so much science that goes into it, um, and, and and it's amazing because I think of. I talked to Urban Artifact, which is a beer company in, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and they do a lot of uh, fruited ales, you know, fruited mm -hmm. beer and talking to them about having to kind of get the bacteria and malt, you know, trying to find the perfect balance and talking about this type of level and that type of level. Just it brings me back to stuff like that, where it's such a unique process. <clears throat> and at times it feels like I just wonder, like what it goes. It feels like I, if it's not just perfect, it could be very not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. And there's a lot of opportunity for it to not go perfect because these are open fermentations in many cases. The the distilleries that we work with down in Kyushu are very small. They're multi-generational family businesses, and they are often very old buildings. Uh, the mahoko that you tried earlier is fermented in uh, this amazing old room with mud walls where these clay pots are sunk up to their shoulders in the distillery floor. And those fermentations are open to whoever and whatever flies in there. And so it's a, it really is about the people that inhabit and work in that space. And when I say inhabit, the family lives in the home that is a, attached to the distillery. If you slide, there's a sliding door facing the still, you slide that open, grandma's in there watching TV, <laughs> right? It's, it really, they live in the distillery and Masako, the woman who makes all three of those drinks that you have, or three of the drinks that you have in front of you, she grew up with the sights and the sounds and the smells of shochu making. And that's all she knows how to do. And that's all she cares to do. And it is about her and it's about her family and it's about her people, the people that work for her doing it in exactly the same way that they've been doing it for generations. And so there's a lot that can go sideways in that process. Um, and, and a lot of places don't allow visitors in because when we, when we move in, we bring a, a story with us. We bring what we ate and the public transportation that we use to get there. And, and those microbes can do some interesting things to whatever is fermenting. So it often is a very sacred place. It's a, it's a sacred, it's a, there's a reverence for the, 
the skill, the passion, passion and the single-minded effort that goes into making these products, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it, it is something that needs to be managed very carefully or something could go wrong. Absolutely. Well, and you, you know, you think about all, all the different products that, that you all are able to now bring over here um, and you know, we're able to enjoy what, what, what's next for you all and how can folks find, find y'all and, and uh, kind of, you know, tell us a little bit about that. Cause obviously at the end of the day, you want folks to enjoy, be able to enjoy all these different expressions and, and spirits. And like I said, I've been, very impressed with just the two that I've gotten to go through so far. Sure. Well, I guess, you know, if you want to learn more about these drinks, there's a few options. There's uh, my book, obviously, The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks. There's also Christopher's book, uh, The Shochu Handbook, which was the first English language guide to shochu and awamori. Uh, we also, if you don't mind, we do have our own podcast, uh, yeah. The Japan Distilled Podcast. Uh, you can find us on social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Japan Distilled. And uh, we, we talk a lot about this, these kinds of things. We talk about other Japanese uh, spirits as well, gin, rum, whiskey, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, lots of, of interesting content on there. And I'll let Christopher talk a little bit about what next, what's next for Honkaku Spirits and where to so find. So we, yeah, um, well, where to find. If you're interested in any of these drinks that we've been tasting or talking about, then please go to honkakuspirits.com. And on the product pages, you can click the find a retailer button and using GPS or using your, your um, computer's address, I guess we should say, it'll show you the different liquor stores and restaurants and bars in your area where you can find these products. If you happen to live in a state where we are distributed, which is about, I guess, currently it's 18 states plus DC. So we're not nationwide, but we're slowly getting there. And if you want to, ah, just a side note, um, in Stephen's book on page 146, you'll notice there's a really dashingly handsome guy standing there at the bar. Um, that's me. All right. Anyway. <laughs> small plug. Small uh, if, plug. I, it's very, it, the most important page in the book, page 146. Okay. So anyway, um, and then if you want to just hear Stephen and I do talk a lot more about these, these uh, drinks and just what we're drinking at home. Um, how we experience them in our daily lives and how we experience them with our, our friends and family, then um, Japan Distilled, Instagram and Twitter are very good resources, uh, as are the Honkaku Spirits versions of uh, both of those platforms. And we just basically, we talk about these things all the time. We also have a, a live stream every Tuesday evening in the United States called Show Tuesday. It, to, yeah, clever. I like it. I like um, it. And we, <laughs> it's Wednesday morning for us and we do it every week. It's always 10 a.m. in Japan when we do it. And we talk about whatever is happening in the industry. We talk about various Japanese spirits, almost always uh, koji fermented and distilled. And we often have guests on to talk about their perspective and their expertise. But Show Tuesday is, like I said, every Wednesday morning in Japan, Friday evening, usually 8 or 9 p.m., depending on daylight savings Tuesday. time. Tuesday evening. Tuesday, Tuesday evening in, in the United States, sorry. <laughs> and uh, you're required to have a drink when you watch. It's just a requirement. We, we check carefully and we kick people off who aren't drinking. And uh, 
you can just basically cheers with us or compi with us. And we those are that's available on Facebook live stream and then also YouTube live stream simultaneously. Uh, that, that is awesome. And, and folks, if you, if you can check it out, it's, it's spelled H-O-N-K-A-K-U uh, spirits. Uh, so go, go give them a, a look. Steve and Christopher, this was a blast. So much knowledge, so much history to talk about. And, and so some amazing drinks and some really good ones too. I want to say that really good ones. And I, I really appreciate y'all taking the time. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. This was, this was absolutely fun.